This is my conversation with Nick Enfield, a prominent linguist and chair of linguistics at the University of Sydney. He is known for his research in linguistic anthropology, exploring the relationship between language, culture, and social interaction. Enfield has conducted extensive fieldwork in various parts of the world and has published his work in numerous scholarly journals and edited volumes. He has received several awards and honors for his contribution in the field, including a fellowship from the Australian Academy of Humanities and a prestigious grant from the Euro European Research Council. So hi, Nick. Hi, how are you? I am good. I just want to start off with something. It's like, give me a little bit uh, about your background because you're interested in linguistics, which is not something that like everybody gets up one day and goes like, you know what, I want to study this. How did this journey start? So my interest in linguistics, I think, goes way back really to an interest in cultural diversity. When I was a kid, I... I had an uncle who was a language teacher. So he taught English at a school for foreign students in Sydney. And when I would visit him, you know, he would often have people from countries all around the world in his home. He'd, he'd hold parties for them or he'd be working with them. Um, or I'd visit his school and I'd meet people from different countries and they had different kinds of food and they spoke in different kinds of ways. And, it just kind of made me curious, made me interested in in getting out and about uh, in the world and seeing different cultures. And when I was able to travel, I did and tra traveled to many different countries as a kind of backpacker after um, finishing high school. And yeah, th those those experiences really made me want to get engaged with culture through language. There was some kind of it seemed to me completely natural to want to learn local languages as a way to connect and to be able to kind of, you know, uh, experience more of a place that I was visiting. So when I traveled at a young age, um, you know, 21 or so, I was sort of learning whatever language happened to be around me. And uh, this was just something that was fun to me at the time. Um, and I had some some kind of talent for it. So in time, that led me to want to study language and linguistics more formally. And, and so that's what I did when I ended up finally going to university and uh, getting into the field of academic research. So you said you started you traveled uh, when you were 21. A lot of people say, like, you know, if you want to know about the people, learn about their food. How similar is it to understand language and, like, of different cultures to understand them? You mean how similar is it from between different different places and different cultures? Or Yes. So yeah, so I think the experience differs a lot depending on both where you go and also what your own background is. So, you know, if you, for example, have learnt English and then you travel to Indonesia, um, the language Bahasa Indonesia is very accessible because it's written using the Roman alphabet and uh, you have to learn a few little different sounds, but it's 
it's pretty straightforward for an English speaker to be able to quickly gain access. And so there's this real sense of ease there. Whereas if you go uh, to a place that has a different writing system, so many parts of South Asia or Southeast Asia, places like Thailand or Cambodia or, you know, obviously China and Japan, um, there's quite a bit more of a learning curve to get access to the language. So that's kind of one factor. And I think um, another factor is the attitude that local people have to people from outside learning their language. So there's there are different kind of ideologies about outsiders learning the language of a, of a community. And so in some communities, for example, in my experience in Laos, where I've done most of my work, you don't have to speak very much Lao for people to say, wow, you're a genius, you know the language, it's amazing. Um, but really, you don't know that much, but you've gone to an effort to learn it and, and people are, you know, genuinely impressed and really positive minded about people uh, who've made that, that, that effort. And so that's very encouraging and it helps you to, to really kind of make progress. But there are other cultures, uh, you know, one of them is, I, I think, uh, Cantonese in Hong Kong would be an example and, and maybe Dutch in the Netherlands would be another example. It's quite hard to sort of break through a local ideology about language that people from outside find it really hard to learn our language. And if you're trying to speak it well, you know, it's it's not really worth the trouble. We can speak English really well. So why are you bothering? Uh, so I don't think that those languages are very much harder or, or easier to learn than a language like Lao or, or Indonesian. But that local attitude really plays a big role in, you know, whether you remain motivated to to, to carry on and learn the language. And, and then I guess the final difference is that languages really are different in some important ways. So depending on your own language background, certain languages will be easier to learn because, for example, they might have uh, words that you recognize that come from common languages. So I've learned Dutch in the past and in some ways that language was pretty quick and easy to learn because there are a lot of words that are related to words in English or French or, you know, sort of other languages that both languages have drawn from, like Latin. Um, so that helps. Whereas if, for example, you go to learn a language in a country where there is, there's no kind of common background, then it, you, you're just going to have to work a little bit harder or perhaps a little bit longer to, to become competent in the language. How do you define the field of linguistics and its uh, relevance in society? So linguistics is pretty diverse as a field of study. You can define it pretty straightforwardly as the science of language, um, which doesn't tell you much. So to be a bit more specific, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really trying to understand what language is as a human phenomenon and one way of kind of going a little bit deeper with that question is saying, well, you know, recognizing the fact that languages are radically different around the world, you know, they, you, you can, you can speak one language, maybe two, maybe three. Uh, most people, you know, speak, let's say a couple or maybe a few languages, but there's some six or 7,000 languages in the world. And, and uh, most of them, you just won't, you, you, you won't know. So 
there's something very noticeable about the radical variation across cultures in language and somehow linguistics has to explain that and has to understand how is it that you can have all this you know incredible variation in in linguistic systems while at the same time having some universal commonality of languages but by, by which i mean all human societies have language but it's just that the, the languages are different so there has to be something underlying about our species that allows us to be able to acquire a language so when, when you learn linguistics it's often said that you know you could take a newborn child from anywhere in the world and uh, put them into the society in any other part of the world and they would um, acquire whatever language they were exposed to so there's something inborn if you like about what makes it possible for humans to learn language and no other animals will learn language in any serious way uh, so linguists try to understand those two questions uh, what is it about all humans that makes it possible for us to have this thing we call language and how much can this thing vary across uh, across the world and what sort of what would set the limits on that variation so in order to kind of study that we have to really get an understanding of of, of what the extent of that variation is in some fields of linguistics you might be looking at i mean most fields of linguistics i'd say look at only a small portion of languages of the world there's a lot of emphasis obviously in terms of just quantity of studies on european languages um, but if you really want to answer the kind of core questions of linguistics, you've got to, you've got to be looking at a, the, the greatest diversity of languages that you possibly can. So going back to your core questions, what is, it, what is so unique about humans' language? Well, that's sort of the golden question in a way about linguistics, and, and it's hard to sort of answer that in a very uh, simple way. But there's certainly been many proposals so some people focus on the kind of informational structure of language and they try to say, well, look, you know, language is this very complex uh, informational system and it has very particular logical properties that other animal communication systems don't have. So things like recursion, uh, recursive structures that allow you to embed structures in other structures and uh, you know it, it's a generative system you can say things that have never been said or thought before you know it's a, it's a system that has a sort of a size and complexity that that you simply can't find in uh, in, the, in the animal world so there are no systems in the animal world that where you have something like a vocabulary of thousands of words like any human language will have plus a set of you know grammatical constructions so there are some sim simple or they're not simple but let's say basic structural properties about language that, that that are unique and all languages will have as i just said thousands of words and lots of structures for generating new things to say out of those words um, but what those words are and what those structures are will vary uh, a whole lot and that, and that's part of what we're interested in my answer to the question that you just asked though is not i mean i, I would certainly agree with everything that i just said um the details differ a lot depending on who you talk to but i think that something that's emerging in answer to that question that's to me extremely interesting has to do not so much with the informational properties of language but with the 
the kind of social cognition that's required for you to be able to use language in the way that we do. So one of the things I've studied quite a lot with colleagues uh, of mine is how conversation works and how the structure of conversation operates. And that includes, you know, if you, if you record people having a conversation in any language, you'll quickly see that there's something that we want to call turn-taking in conversation. Dynamics of it might be a bit different from group to group, but you've, you're generally going to have some alternation between uh, speakers and listeners. And what you're also going to have is a system, um, systems of the kind that, for an example, would be what we call repair, a repair system. And that is a system where you can say things like, huh, what, what was that? She did. Uh, these kinds of very little informal sounding kind of interjections uh, that we typically don't even sort of think about, or if we do think about them, we, we sort of say, well, that's not kind of, that's not what we mean when we look at language. But actually there's something really deeply important about those things that I would want to argue define things that are special about human language. So there's no animal communication system that I know of where, uh, you know, the, the animals in question are able to refer to the system itself using the system. So when I say, for example, what did you say? I'm, I'm using language to refer back to language to something that you just said. I can quote your speech or I can quote the speech of someone else and report that to you at, at another place in time. Uh, these functions, this is the kind of re reflexivity of language, is, is one thing that's really unique um, about language, I, I believe. And the other one, I think, is this idea that the interactions that we're in when we use language are bound up by a certain social accountability. So if you say something that is unclear to me or, or I didn't hear it or it didn't make sense or this was inappropriate in some way, I can hold you to account. I, if, for example, I ask you a question and you don't respond, I can say, hey, I asked you a question. Now, animals will sometimes pursue a response, which is sort of similar to that, but they don't have the capacity to uh, call you out by describing the thing that you did. Um, and in particular, when it comes to language, by uh, saying something like, I asked you a question, which, which describes the action that I took or answer me that, that describes that the uh, the action that you are supposed to take now and, and and at the same time it holds you to account for which is basically a kind of moral failing uh, so when you have a conversation with someone you're committing to making a contribution and we see animals uh, making certain kinds of commitments but they're not normative commitments in in this sense and so one of the arguments I've been developing uh, particularly with colleagues, so Jack Sidnell, for example, um, is that uh, language really requires a kind of cooperative moral code um, that is unique to our species. This is something that we've looked at. It's something that people like um, Mike Tomasello and others uh, have looked at. And to my mind, this is, I think, one of the most interesting and promising aspects of, of that issue that you raise with your question about what's unique about human language. Speaking of a cooperative moral code, how does social media play into this? So now there is this 
there's not that engaging back and forth conversation where people are engaging and then someone calls them out there's a lot of like misinformation uh, it's not just like you know people on social media be it like you know uh, political figures and there's no checks and balances which is like immediate so when someone says some falsehood it's not easily like curbed uh, how does that play how does language evolve in that manner well um the philosopher ludwig wittgenstein talked about language games a long time ago and uh one way to interpret that is to is to really think about language as having a set of rules like games do and that uh means that i mean when you think about cultural diversity you you realize that you know there can be different sets of rules in different uh contexts and different settings and also within a within a uh, a culture you have different kinds of games so if you look at sport um you know some in some games you can touch the ball in other games you can't some games you kick the ball in others you don't uh so there's all of this sort of different sets of rules and something like social media brings in its own set of rules now the underlying stuff of interaction the language is is presupposed that's going to be there as part of the medium but when you introduce something like social media you're changing the rules around what it means to be a player so you know if you if if you're playing baseball well you have you're able you're allowed to do certain things and not other things or you have certain possibilities available to you in language if you're using social media well it's a newly developing i mean it depends also on like which media we happen to be talking about um but these cultures emerge and so i think it's hard to generalize about social media in general but if you look at particular kind of cultures of social media uh there's a few really important factors so obviously one is relative anonymity so you can be anonymous much more easily than you can in 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 sort of face to face conversations um having said that though a lot of people aren't anonymous and so reputation does matter and and uh so you know you're not necessarily going to destroy your uh reputation um intentionally most people are trying to somehow preserve it or protect it in some way um but i think a second feature of how the rules differ is that depending on what kind of language game we're playing truth may or may not be important so you know if i'm talking to a family member about making plans for where we're going to be tomorrow or something like that i don't want to lie to them uh and if i do lie to them about where i'm going to be or what time i intend to be at that place um you know that's just completely uncooperative and it's going to create a real problem right so oftentimes in life you 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 truth matters and it's part of the game is to be as truthful as you can uh but sometimes in other games and i think social media often goes in this direction you're not really there to exchange facts you're there to you know this is not the case with all social media exchanges at all but a lot of them um you know it's a more signaling game so it's saying well i'm part of this group and you're part of that group and uh we're not really trying to convince each other of anything we're not really trying to inform each other of anything we're more trying to position ourselves and advertise our stance with others so this kind of directs us to a very important and also very old and basic function of language and that is that you can convey information using language and tell people things they didn't know 
So often when people talk about the original functions of language, they'll say things like, you know, oh, there's a buffalo down on the plains, you know, you can go and hunt them or something. So sure, you can transmit information in that way. But just as important and arguably more important, uh, you can use language to advertise who you are and to position yourself with uh, other people. And so obviously animal signaling works in that way where you can create coalitions and you can set up allegiances and you can express your commitment to others within your social setting. And um, so I think that that oftentimes social media really leans towards that kind of social positioning function rather than a function of trying to uh, circulate good information. So why is social media used as a tool to social position yourself? Why has it evolved in that manner? I understand like, you know, back in the day it was to communicate information. And now it's a mix of two things, especially when it comes to like, let's say Instagram or a TikTok or a Facebook. Well, I'm not sure if it's ever really been just one or just the other. I mean, I think today you get both. And, and it seems to me that, you know, it's just like any family of language games that you're always really going to get both so you know if i go on twitter uh sometimes i'm learning things i didn't know that are really interesting so if i'm following uh let's say academic accounts uh someone will announce a paper that was just published or they will link to something some news that has come out or something like that so often you you really are just picking up new information or reading an argument about something uh, that is informative in some kind of way, but then at other times you're looking at a different kind of account and you can see, hopefully, if you're <laughs> deceptive, you can see that this is, you know, truth's not what really matters to this particular post. There's some other effect that is tr that people are trying to um, create. And, of course, you know, with something like Instagram, um, it does have this political side, but it's also oh, the entire thing is highly commercialised. So, so most or a huge amount of social media is a manipulation system uh, where people are really trying to uh, encourage you to take certain actions like click on this link or uh, buy this product or you know whatever the, th the, the thing may be so obviously social media has very specific affordances for those kinds of functions so instagram um, it's all about the visual impact and the people have very accessible tools for doing great visual stuff if they're skillful um, in ways that weren't accessible until until recently. So I think I think again that social media is very diverse in its functions and I don't really see that one or another function is taking over in general. It may be the case in more specific uses. Uh, so there's a critique about social media, for example, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt talks about, and many others who he's citing are looking at the effects of certain kinds of social media that kids are using, uh, where the specific function has to do with uh, getting likes for posts that you put and sort of quantifying uh, you know, the responses and one's position within a community based on how many of those likes you get. Um, and so there's a, there, you know, there are certain dangers to kind of outsourcing social value uh, to those kinds of systems. Uh, but there's certainly not 
by any means the only or the dominant kinds of uh, functions that social media is performing in, in, at the most general level. How, what are the variations in linguistic systems and what are the similarities between like different cultures, different groups of people? Well, it, that's a very general question and is, is, you know, goes to the heart of what linguistics tries to show. I mean, you can look at a lot of different measures in language and kind of try to describe the differences in, in all sorts of ways. So if you sort of work your way through language systems, you can quantify in various ways some of those differences. So for example, uh, all spoken languages have a, a, a sound system. There are obviously uh, sign languages that don't work using sound. Um, but within spoken languages, uh, there's a great deal of variation in sound systems. So if you go from place to place, languages obviously sound different. Uh, and that's because they sample from different kind of subsets of all the possible sounds that the human vocal apparatus can make. So there's a very sort of surface level variation. I mean, literally just when the language hits your eardrums, what, 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 what kind of sounds do you hear? That would be one uh, kind of difference. And, and when you dig a little bit deeper into sound systems, you find just different principles for how you can put sounds together. So you might have a similar set of sounds in two languages, but different rules about how they can be ordered or, you know, what's a possible syllable. And that sort of comparison gets very technical very quickly. Um, you know, as you work your way up through the structures of language, uh, you can then begin to look at things like words, how they get structured. Uh, again, more kind of technical stuff to do with whether this language has prefixes or has suffixes or, you know, how, how words and phrases get sort of built up. And that should be familiar to anyone who's learned more than one language that you, uh, a very simple example would be, you know, in some languages you have a noun and you put the adjective before it, uh, like in English. And in other languages, you you put the adjective after the noun. So there's some, again, fairly sort of, um, arbitrary or kind of perhaps even trivial differences between language, uh, languages having to do with, uh, with structure. I guess when you get a little bit sort of higher in the levels of, of function in language, people tend to focus on diversity in, in, what, in what's called pragmatics of language. And that has to do with how language is used in social interaction. Uh, so oftentimes people will point out that in, in certain cultures it's regarded as normal to be much more direct about what you want. So you might, uh, you know, be more likely to give people uh, direct orders or, uh, or something like that. Um, whereas in another culture you might be more indirect and you might kind of uh, not ask questions so directly if you're trying to get somebody uh, to help you. If you study that kind of a phenomenon, so that's something I've studied uh, with colleagues, that is to say, looking at how people make requests in everyday life. Uh, it's true that there are different ways to do this and cultures can vary in that, in that way. But I think often those differences are overstated or they're sort of amplified in how we talk about language. So I was just talking about how you have, for example, if I'm trying to get you to do something, I could be very indirect and say, 
oh, it's cold in here as a way of hinting that you should turn on the, the heater or something. Um, mm. Or I could just be very direct and say, turn on the heater. Uh, now, the, the thing is that all languages will give you options. Inside that kind of community, there's always a set of different options for how you can do something. And the sets across languages are different and the kind of emphasis and the implications of what those choices are is going to be different in, in complex ways from culture to culture. But within any given culture, you certainly have options and the options are going to range in similar ways. So more direct, less direct would be one kind of uh, set, set of options. Um, so, you know, it's those are just a few sort of senses in which languages can vary. And to really answer that question in a way, that's sort of what linguistics tries to do. And you can study linguistics for years and, and decades and still not quite uh, pull together all the kind of attempts to, to, to answer that question. But it, it's a good way of characterizing, I think, what we do in linguistics. And that is to really try to understand what's possible in language and what's found in language and, and where is it and how has it come to be like that is there a way of understanding the social hierarchy or, or like the bonds of social hierarchy based on language because in some cultures if someone is older like you know there's a respect and there are certain words that are used to like you know address them uh, and if you speak to them indirectly or like you know informal then there are consequences to it and that kind of like tailors the language over like decades and so you don't see the remnants of it like i mean you don't see the physical remnants of it but it's still like you know is informed in the way people communicate absolutely so uh there are certainly languages that are more elaborated in this respect uh perhaps famous would be languages like japanese where you know one of the first things you learn about the language is that there are these levels of politeness and you have to think carefully about who the person is that you're speaking to. There are many languages where that kind of thing is important and other languages where perhaps it's less important. Uh, so for example, just in terms of my own experience, I mean, I, I, I work on languages in Laos in Southeast Asia and I guess the main language I've worked on is Lao itself so that's the national language of Laos and in that language you don't have just a you know, there's a very big difference between the pronouns of that language and the pronouns of English uh, so nowadays people like to talk about pronouns a lot uh, and it's interesting because you know uh, oftentimes people are pretty unaware of how elaborate and how much variance there is in pronoun systems in languages of the world, as, as you no doubt know. So, um, you know, English has this very, let's say, simple set of pronouns. Uh, you know, I, you, he, she, they. Um, and there isn't any distinction in that set of pronouns that really marks what you might call politeness. Um, if you go to you know, often people will see that in some languages like German or French or Dutch uh, in, uh, of Europe, you have two pronouns in the second person, so two words for you, uh, which one of which is kind of more polite, more formal, more distant, uh, and the other is potentially less polite or more informal or more sort of intimate. Uh, and so that's just a tiny little 
piece of kind of social differentiation enters into the pronoun system. But when you go to a, a language like Lao, that that little split is it is it has gone sort of throughout the the pronoun system. So uh, pronouns that refer to you. Uh, you know, you have three or four levels where you have to decide, okay, uh, is this person someone who's around my age, who I've known since I was a child, I have absolute intimacy with this person, or, you know, or I'm, uh, or, or is this person someone who uh, is a, perhaps a stranger or someone who, who I, I have a sort of distant, distal or sort of formal relationship with, or is this person very, revered they might be a monk in the temple or something like this and and, and i have to decide uh which of these pronouns to use and similarly i have the same levels for myself so we don't just have one word for i but we have uh, more than one word and the same questions come into play do i refer to myself in this highly informal way or this more distant way or this very sort of self-deprecating way uh, so that that's just in the pronoun system that you can get very elaborate kind of coding of social hierarchy. That's one way that you could characterize it. Um, but it's not only in the pronoun system. So, you know, you get um, a lot of other practices that might be other politeness routines in, in, in speech, things like, you know, please and thank you and choosing special polite words. Uh, or, or other bodily sort of behaviors. So whether you bow more deeply or crouch down when you walk near somebody or, you know, all sorts of ways in which you can signal social hierarchy. And, and you know, all languages will have something like that. Um, even languages like English, which is supposed to express a kind of egalitarian ethic, uh, clearly have many ways of expressing, uh, you know, respect and hierarchy and this this type of thing or formality or distance. You know, we have words like sir and ma'am and uh, many other many other ways. So I would draw these kinds of functions of language back to uh, some of the points that we were making earlier that have to do with social structure and social positioning uh so hierarchy is it's partly a kind of a an absolute kind of diagram of a of a, of a society but also it's it's really about where do i fit in relation to all the people around me um so in that way language is always expressing some relational kind of stance towards what you're saying and towards the person you're talking to and towards the kind of context that you're in uh, and you really can't get away from that. So if you just want to focus on the kind of informational content or how language can refer to objects and events in the world, you're going to miss all of that uh, social value that language has. Can you discuss your research on human cognitive biases and language and the role of language uh, that it, uh, you know how and how would you help to understand like you know their connections? Yeah, so this is something that I wrote about a bit in a recent book that I published called Language Versus Reality. And that book was really focusing on the idea that language is kind of better designed for lawyers than it is for scientists in the sense that it is really a, a tool for influence, uh, a tool for for framing and really for sort of directing people's attention in certain ways and shaping 
their understanding in certain kinds of ways. And in order to make that case and to think through how that would work, um, cognitive bias is a useful sort of framework. So in psychology and behavioral economics for a long time, there's been an increasingly good understanding of this idea of cognitive bias. So it's things like confirmation bias and anchor bias and many other biases where we are not necessarily that good at thinking in sort of purely logical, rational, objective ways that we're easily uh, lured into jumping to certain conclusions that might not be warranted or committing certain you know errors of reasoning. And it's been understood for a long time that that context and framing can really sort of affect uh, or trigger those biases in certain kinds of ways. And framing is very much a matter of language a lot of the time. So in one of the early studies of, of framing, uh, it's by Richard Thaler, he's looking at the ways in which credit card companies were trying to control the language around credit cards when they were being introduced in the 1970s in in, in the US. So you know, th this was a time where everyone was using cash. You want to pay for something, you've got to have the cash in your wallet. And they were trying to get people to adopt um, credit cards. And of course, when you take a credit card, it, it gets this convenience, but you have to pay this little fee every time you use it. So the credit card companies were struggling with this kind of trade-off was we want people to choose the convenience over the little loss of money and then that's going to be how we make money. And they discovered that cognitive biases, there was this, you know, obviously people have a, a, a an aversion to loss. You know, they don't want to lose money. Um, and there was this kind of way of talking about credit cards that they, they had this expression, credit card surcharge. Uh, so you pay, you know, let's say you buy dinner, it costs you $100, that's the bill. Uh, and they say, okay, well, you pay actually 101 because we have this 1% credit card surcharge. And, you know, people don't like to lose something. So that was making some people hesitant to take it up. Um, so what the credit card companies tried to do, uh, and they succeeded, was to promote this a different wording. So instead of calling it credit card surcharge, they said, okay, the, the actual price of the meal is $101. But if you pay cash, you get a discount and it's $100 instead. Um, and so they call this a cash discount. And they found that, uh, you know, people were, were more willing to forego a small gain uh, than they were uh, willing to uh, agree to a cost of that same size. And this is one of the sort of basic cognitive biases. So I think it's a really illustrative case where uh, you know, here's somebody, the credit card company that has a particular interest and they were able to use language to exploit a cognitive bias in their audience in order to get people, and in, in, in Thaler's terms, this would be uh, to nudge people to take a certain decision. But actually they're free to have a credit card or use cash, it's their choice. Um, but the way that you frame that, and that's a linguistic question, uh, will nudge them in one direction or another. What is your take on the current post-truth problem? 
and how can linguistics research help address it? Well, I think the post-truth problem comes back to a lot of what I was saying earlier about social media. I think that uh, one thing is that language has always had a truth problem. You can lie with language, um, and that's always a risk. You can exaggerate with language. You can direct people's attention to some things and away from others with language. So there's never been a time when, you know, language hasn't presented certain problems of misdirection, misinformation, uh, and all of that. I mean, everything I just talked about with framing means that, you know, language is, is always framing what you understand in certain kinds of ways. So in some ways, the post-truth problem is a is exaggerated in terms of how how new this problem is or, or what it is but i do think it is uh more acute than it than it has been and i think you're right if you were suggesting earlier that social media has something to do with that so i think my way of thinking about it is that it is coming from a a new set of games that are being played at a very large scale that 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 are really about using language to signal more than they are about using language to uh, uh, to convey facts. So facts become a kind of collateral damage in a way <laughs> in this uh, arms race to to use language to sort of take a stance. So there's just in certain language games which are now become uh, possible at much greater scale. Um, you know the rule the, the the rule of the game or the kind of the way the game is played is that yeah you don't really have to worry about whether what you're saying corresponds to truth or not that's not part of the game here um what we're trying to do is to provoke a reaction and and indicate our stance with respect to to others um so that's my take on the sort of mechanism but i think it's a terrible trend because those collateral effects become very real. You know, if you have people beginning to uh, internalize statements that are untrue, then, you know, it's natural to to act upon those statements. And, and there's a thin line between voicing a belief because it signals who you are and then, you know, believing that thing and then, and, and then actually acting upon it. So that's kind of one part. I think the other part is that... Uh, Oftentimes when we talk about the post-truth problem, people want to know, oh, yeah, how do we fix it? Do we ban uh, falsehoods? You know, uh, do we get fact, you know, do we get uh, fact checking uh, widgets in everything? You know, how do we how do we fix this? How do we clean up the Internet? Um, and I think that's completely impossible. And, and, and I think most people ha would have to agree with that. You really just can't stem the flow or, or, or in any objective way kind of uh, control the truth or falsehood of what people say. So I think the answer is really to, uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like a kind of platitude, but it's really about having true critical thinking as part of our culture and, and as a kind of a global understanding of how you consume information it's it, it's something that obviously we're supposed to learn in school it's something we're certainly supposed to learn at university if we go to university um but it's surprisingly hard 
to maintain good critical thinking. Um, but I think that's the only answer. I think that, you know, the gate, you don't, there are no gatekeepers for truth in the information economy. Um, so individuals have to take responsibility for doing that. So true skepticism, true critical thinking, true, a true approach where people are critical of their own thinking in particular. Um, that's, I think, by far the most important form of critical thinking is questioning your own beliefs and understandings and really sort of taking your time before you decide to commit to a certain belief is 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 really crucial so that's the only thing that we really do have power over uh and as long as you know if you could change people's behavior with respect to how readily they accept ideas and then repeat them uh you know then you would diffuse a lot of the problems that are created by misinformation circulating speaking of misinformation and like uh, stuff like that. There's this whole thing with deep fakes, which is like becoming a more prevalent problem as we like, you know, go ahead with like, you know, new technology access to that. And it's not, it's not something that's going away. Like you said, uh, critical thinking, thinking is a, like a crucial part to be able to like, you know, differentiate between falsehoods and truths. Uh, the future doesn't look like it's going to be easy for like, you know, the younger generation to be able to like say, okay, this is clearly fake. Because it's getting the AI technology that's available, it's going to just get better and better. There yeah. can't be a streamlined source of information because even now, like, like major news channels get it wrong. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How does one tackle? Look, in the, uh, yeah. So I think, again, it's a culture change is the only way you can deal with that culture change um, that, that takes place in the minds of the people who consume the culture so you know i think that deep fakes work best on people who haven't had to confront them before you know so like for my speaking for myself person of a certain age uh if you saw a video you know that's reality right so you can't fake those things well, occasionally there'd be something that's been faked you know with special effects in a movie or something like that but that's too requires expertise and requires you know expense and basically if you've seen a recording of it it's true um but when it becomes possible to fake things at zero cost and to do it in a very convincing way well you know people uh like me if i haven't switched on my kind of skeptical uh, machine are going to get just very easily tricked but i think you know and maybe that's the case with most people who are consuming media today because deep fakes are just brand new but as soon as you've been through a few cycles of controversy where people have been caught up by that because it's embarrassing right you get caught up at something you think something's real it turns out not to be real uh it's it might be actually embarrassing to you because you reported it and it turned out to be false but it's sort of in your mind you 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 realize well i got tricked by that you know and that's not good um so i i would i want to think that if you could go forward in time like 20 years and talk to you know 18 year olds uh you know so people who let's say they start looking at videos in in a few years from now um I would like to think that they're just going to be much less 
they're just going to have a different calibration to seeing things like videos. I mean, they'll look at them like, let's say I look at something that's just written down in a storybook. Okay, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I need to know the context. If this uh, paragraph comes from a novel, well, someone made it up. If it comes from a news report, well, it's a report of a real thing. But unless I know that context, I can't, I can't judge. So that's a matter of calibration and a matter of understanding you know, what's the quality and the status of any sort of piece of input that I'm going to get exposed to. And, and, and there's always a time lag with these things. So there's this window between when the tech gets introduced and when, you know, the majority of people are, are sensitive to it. So that doesn't mean that they can spot a deep fake. Let's assume that we won't be able to tell uh, if it's real or not just by looking at it. Uh, but the solution is not to it, that. That again comes back to this question of well, is fact checking the solution? It should. It's. It's not going to be the solution to tell me oh this video is fake versus that one's real. Um, it's really about getting into a mindset where you just don't accept that something is real until you've got some triangulation. Until you have an independent. I mean, there's like old journalistic principles. You know, you don't uh, put it on the in the newspaper until you've got independent corroboration. Uh, uh, you don't pass on this information until you have a, a, an independent um, source. So I think that's going to have to be something that all individuals internalize because if you don't, just as you pointed out, you know, you're really, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. Speaking of the younger generation, how important is it for like, you know, when you're growing up to learn more than one language. Why is it even important? Like, because a lot of people like, you know, the the space that I am in, everybody understands me. And like, you know, I'm able to like, you know, navigate through the world. How does learning different languages help develop a person? Or like, why is it important just in general? Well, one answer is just practical. I mean, you want to travel, you want to get to different parts of the world, you're going to need more than one language. Um, but I think your question is going to something deeper. And I think that, you know, there's a sense of, that there's an idea that when you learn a language, you really just got sort of learning one version of the world, one way of kind of portraying the way that things are. Um, and what I mean by portraying is, you know, the words of a language expressions that a language has all of these things are just sort of one set of tools for framing what the world is like and how it can be and those tools are the currency for a particular culture a particular group with a particular set of values um and we you know we're kind of like fish swimming around in language as as water we don't really kind of see that it is pushing against us and, and, and influencing kind of which direction we swim in and so on. What I think is really important about learning other languages is that it, it, it gives you this kind of noise injection for the mind. It, it gives you this sense of seeing things in a slightly different way or having the world sort of presented to you in a different way uh, shakes up a little bit just some of your uh, presuppositions about what what you think the world is like and one of the most important ways in which it does that is that it draws your attention to the fact that your language is just one version that your understandings of reality as presented to you by language are just one way of framing the way that things are so that helps for 
what I was saying earlier about kind of being skeptical about your own position. And that doesn't just mean, you know, whether what you said is what you believe is true or not, but it's whether the way you frame things is a good way to frame them or not, or is the best way to frame them or not. So, you know, this, this idea goes back very far. Uh, there's a researcher by the name of Benjamin Lee Worf uh, going back to the first half of the 20th century in the US, and he's famous for developing this idea of linguistic relativity. And his argument then was, look, you know, that there's there are these European languages that many people know because they're from Europe and, uh, you know, they speak languages like English. And it's easy to feel that this is uh, a system for representing just reality in a transparent way. And now Wolf was studying Native American languages and they're structured in very different ways to European languages. And he was very struck by that and wrote about how people's habits for talking about simple events and situations in the world uh, really kind of put a different frame on, on what he was seeing. And his, his, his argument was that it's good for you to learn languages very different from your own precisely because it gives you that insight into your own limitations in a sense. Uh, so he had this metaphor where he said, you know, imagine a, a, uh, that you are from a group of people who could, could only see blue. It would be impossible for you to understand that you could only see blue if you didn't get a glimpses occasionally of other colors. Uh, and that's what other languages will give you. And then you realize, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. I've never seen that in that way before. And you go back to your own system and you, and you realize something's missing. Um, and similarly, you're, you're, you're working with a new system and you say, well, there are things that that system doesn't have. And then you learn another language and another language and it begins to help you to really unsettle a lot of the assumptions that, that you've made about uh, how your linguistic system sort of represents reality. And you see better and better that it's just one version. And I think that's healthy for how we think. How do children learn language and how can, what can we learn from that, this process? Uh, well, again, you've asked a very big question, uh, you know, how do children learn language uh, many many thousands of researchers have devoted their careers to this question um how do children learn language it's it, it's a it's an amazing process there's absolutely no doubt learning language is phenomenal right i mean you you take a newborn baby and uh you you know they're in a family environment um with with their immediate family and usually their extended family and a few others around them and they, they have very intensive interactions and lots of language is getting, it's like a sort of waterfall of rushing Niagara of words uh, pouring over them. Um, and lo and behold, within a few years, uh, you know, they go from a few words to the possibility of putting, you know, a couple of words together and then suddenly three words. And, and by the age four, they're just speaking fluently. Uh, you know, they still have to learn a lot of words and, and, and and so on but it's this incredible thing that people uh, you know often think of as as almost miraculous there's something unbelievable about how humans 
can learn language so quickly and and that's uh, what happens in infant uh, language learning so obviously with adults who learn language you know let's say you're age 30 you move to another country well it's much harder to learn language at anything like that speed or with anything like that success rate um, how it happens is is uh, you know we would very quickly be getting into technical kind of discussions it's not my field but I think that one thing I would say about how language learning occurs is is that the earlier in our conversation I was talking about the the fundamentally social nature of language and the fact that using language requires you to have certain sort of capacity to cooperate and the capacity to to apply norms to that sort of cooperation in, in interaction and a lot of the recent work on um, language acquisition, I, I mentioned Michael Tomasello's work, uh, he's been very prominent in taking this position that children can't really begin to learn their language seriously until they have these interactional cooperative capacities in place. So these are not really capacities to, I mean, these don't have anything to do with structural properties of language like announcing sounds or, you know, the word order of specific phrases. Those things are crucial and they are part of the process, there's no doubt. But his point is that you won't ever get that process really started or seriously going if you don't have the crucial social capacity to cooperate, to share attention with others, to share goals with others. Uh, and that's really the foundational function uh, of language is to is to use it as a tool to coordinate with others. So in terms of how kids learn language, but 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 also you know adults in 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 adulthood, um, what is really fundamental is that you have some context in which you're able to use language to achieve your goals. And for a first language acquisition scenario where you know it's an infant who's trying to, learn how to live and get what they want. Um, language is, is, is really this incredibly powerful tool. And so they're very, very motivated uh, to learn it well and to be able to use it in ways that, that, that are socially effective. And can you uh, speak a little bit of your work with gestures and its relation to language? Because I know that is a key part of communicating with uh, anyone. And how does that inform things? What's the like? You know, what's the insight that you've gained over your work with it? So gesture uh, is a big field of study that looks essentially. I mean, when when we talk about gesture, what we're talk, talking about is moving our hands when we're speaking. That's kind of the the prototype of when we talk about gesture. Um, it's just a fact about language that for spoken language, uh, two things are true. One is that, you know, if you're in the dark, the light is off, or if you're on, on someone's on the other side of a wall around, around the corner, you can, or on the telephone, you can use just pure sound to communicate using language. So you don't have to have any visual contact on the other person. So language is very powerful in that way. Um, but in reality, most of the time, we do have visual access to the other person and we do use all of the resources that we can to communicate. Uh, so that involves the hands. 
but it also involves the body, how you hold your body, how you shift it. Obviously, the face, very rich set of facial expressions allow you to uh, express meanings in combination with, with what you're saying. And it, it's a fact about language that, particularly going back to the hand movements, that people will, uh, wherever you go, whatever the language is, maybe to different frequencies and in different ways but anywhere you go people will move their hands in expressive ways while they're talking now what those functions are is can vary quite a lot across cultures so some some of these gestures are um uh in, in a certain way not hard to understand so things like you know um you know, peace sign or you know thumbs up uh these are the sort of basically like hand gestures that stand in for words um that that but i think the research on gesture certainly that i've done um but a lot of the more productive research on gesture that's been done in in, in the psychology of language has been really looking at how hand gestures don't replace speech but they complement speech in, in in certain important ways so uh all languages feature that type of function of language and uh, of gesture rather, and it can work in a, a number of ways. So one whole category of point of gesture is pointing. So people point in different ways in different cultures, but certainly the case that wherever you go, people will have a way of using their body, oftentimes their hand, often with the index finger pointing, uh, they will indicate things to each other. So uh, could you pass me that thing? Or look at that over there. Uh, so you have words like that, this and that, uh, which don't tell you very much information, but if you combine them with pointing gestures, uh, they allow you to sort of attach the language to the, the physical setting around you. And that, that makes language much more economical and much more efficient. So you don't necessarily need the word for the thing if you can use a word like this or that and a pointing gesture. Um, then you have a whole category of gestures that, allow you to convey properties of meaning that you might not even have words for. So I might talk about a certain, some one of the research studies that I did was on um, how people in Laos talk about certain forms of technology. So uh, in this one study I did was about fish traps that people make, people who live in villages alongside rivers uh, build these fish traps out of bamboo and they place them in the water to catch fish and these fish traps have different shapes and sizes so if you ask people to talk about the fish traps and just tell them tell you about them well first thing they prefer to grab a fish trap and show you uh, <laughs> because you don't have a good vocabulary you know uh, unless you have specialized vocabulary so if you don't have any fish traps in the vicinity people will use their hands and they'll use their hands in these very particular ways. Oh, this one's shaped like that. And this one's shaped like this. And this one has a opening in the bottom. And, you know, you get a lot of these illustrative gestures that are essentially compensating for things that spoken language can't do very well. So uh, giving very fine, let's say gradients of angle, you know, you could, you have in, let's say in English, you've got like steep angle or shallow angle, but, you know, you can't really finally distinguish between all the gradients between sort of shallow angle and steep angle. So gesture allows you to uh, indicate more gradient information 
uh, that that language wouldn't let you do, and that, that's universal. So you know, no matter what language you speak, including sign languages, which are using all visual uh, information, you are able to get some part of the linguistic system to 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 express kind of what we might call digital or kind of um, categorical information and another part of the linguistic system to to give more expressive or more gradient information and one sort of prototypical understanding of gesture is that it uh, that the hands kind of deal with the more gradient information and the spoken component deals with the more kind of discrete categorical digital information besides gestures what other communication skills can we use to avoid misunderstanding especially when it comes to a, a multicultural context uh, well, it's a hard one. I mean, I'm not sure if gesture kind of helps or hinders. It's just like language itself. You know, you need to, uh, I think in terms of dealing with cultural communication, you really have to be patient. Everyone involved has to be patient and has to be not too quick to to jump to conclusions that you've understood what was expressed. <laughs> I, I think actually this comes back to the post-truth problem in a way. So, you know, if someone does, if you're in a cross-cultural setting and someone says something or, or does something that uh, your immediate reaction is, oh, that's bad or that's offensive or something like that, um, hmm. it it's important to to not jump to that conclusion on the first, you know, maybe it was offensive, maybe it was bad, you know, but you want to wait and confirm uh, this in some sense. So, you know, the classic cases of cross-cultural miscommunication have to do with, you know, certain kinds of behavior being harmless in some situation, in some culture, but, you know, deathly uh, offensive in some other culture. And, and sometimes a person is innocent. They literally don't know what they're doing. In uh, other times they're not innocent and they're doing something on purpose so uh, it's really all about calibrating people's intentions to how those sort of uh, words or actions get interpreted and in order to to make that calibration when we're in our own culture we you know we can be pretty confident that everyone's reasonably well calibrated it's never perfect we, we often offend people when we didn't mean to but if you're in a a different cultural setting then you just it's much more likely that you won't have that calibration so uh, a big part of cross-cultural communication and is a general kind of principle is really to is to have that patience and to sort of have take a bit of distance from your immediate gut reactions to to interpreting what people are saying and allowing things to be said in more than one way uh, allowing an extra round of kind of clarification than you might normally need if you were in your own cultural setting. What are some of the challenges that you face in your field of linguistics and how can you how can one address them? Well, I mean, there, there, there's a whole range of different challenges. I mean, it all depends on what you're looking at. One kind of challenge that I am often thinking about is if you're really interested in thinking about the social elements of language and, and, and what language looks like in social interaction. Um, one of the biggest challenges is that it's very hard to get data and it's very costly and time consuming to get good quality data. So uh, I'll give you an example. So if, for example, you are, 
you're doing a research project on some structural property of language, like, for example, you know, how many languages of the world put the adjective before the noun and how many put the adjective after the noun? It's perfectly good question. And in fact, it's, you know, was famously asked in the 1960s by Joseph Greenberg, um, who sort of set up the, founded the field of linguistic typology. You, if you wanted to ask a question like that about the structure of languages, uh, you could just go down to a good library um, or nowadays you use the internet and uh, you can just, people have written books about this stuff and, and they haven't necessarily pulled all the data together, but you can find each individual data point in a, in a reference source. So that's one way in which science is kind of cumulative and uh, people who did work earlier on are able to save the time of people who take some of that data and do something uh, with it. Now, a simple structural question like where does the adjective go in relation to the noun, uh, therefore, is, you know, not that hard to, to address using that type of data. But if your question is something like, does this language, you know, how do people deal with misunderstandings in the course of conversation in this language? So if we know from studies of English that people can say a range of things if what the other person just said was hard to hear or you didn't understand it. So you could say things like, huh, what, what was that? Uh, she did a range of ways of what we would call initiating repair and getting the person to repeat what they just said or clarify what they just said. If that's what you're interested in comparing across languages, which is more interactional kind of question, you can't apply that same method. You can't go down to the library and find a book on the shelf that talks about that. Um, and that's because it's just, you know, you can buy, you can get a hundred year old grammar book and still get the information about where's the adjective go in relation to the noun, because that's the kind of thing that you can write down and you can just ask someone for the information and you can observe how people speak and, 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 and set that down. But questions around things like what is, what's the structure of the flow of interaction? Uh, it's very hard to study if you don't actually have direct recordings and direct data from those types of interactions. So uh, nowadays we've solved that through cheap uh, video recording. You know, you can go into a, uh, a village setting or a professional setting and you can make video recordings for you know, very little cost, um, zero cost really, just the cost of everybody's time. Um, but the challenge is that, you know, it's fine to say, oh, well, video recording now has solved the problem. It sort of has, but you need a human to actually go out to the field, collect these materials, and then after that, you know, sit down, transcribe everything, uh, find examples of the things you're interested in looking at, and then do the comparison. So we've, we've just had a paper accepted that looks at uh, how people ask each other to do things in, in, in home and village settings. And it took us many years to complete the study precisely because what we wanted to do was to systematically compare data from video recordings of people in, in, in home and village settings in very diverse cultures. And that required one colleague to spend time in Ecuador recording, you know, transcribing, translating, annotating, coding, 
you know, in, in this community in Ecuador and the same for a community in Ghana and the same for a community in Laos and the same for a community in Russia and Italy and so forth. So the overheads of looking at language and social interaction of, of uh, for me, are one of the things that presents a great challenge uh, for, for, for doing good linguistics. Now, I mean, coming back to your more general question, there's certainly big changes in linguistics at the moment that have to do with uh, new availability of data. So big data, uh, you know, having access to the internet and millions or billions of words of, uh, of, of corpus materials does allow brand new types of analysis, which which are giving us new kinds of insights. Um, but I guess this kind of presents, those kinds of opportunities also present other challenges, and that is, well, what about those aspects of uh, language that don't, you know, that aren't necessarily answered through that kind of data? So again, coming back to interactional uh, uh, interactional sequences and so on. So for me, Personally, I mean, I think there are a lot of challenges in linguistics, but for me personally, that would be that would be where we really want to try to concentrate our efforts and just uh, get much better quality comparison about how people interact using language, not just how languages are structured, but how people interact using languages uh, in everyday life around the world. And what are the different findings you've gotten from Russia, be it Ghana, what 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 does it boil down to or does it not boil down to something where, that everybody can like understand well i hope it, it it's something that everybody can understand i mean i think what we've been finding is that in general people's expectation is that cultures are going to uh vary in these radical ways when it comes down to how people interact with each other um and we find that actually culture, culture is very less than you might expect in some of these ways. So in this study that I just mentioned that was, it's not published yet, but it's recently been accepted for publication, is about the ways in which people get each other to do things in the, in the most informal kinds of home environments. And we know that different cultures set different sorts of values on resource sharing and cooperation and that kind of thing, particularly when it comes to, you know, dealing with uh, sort of larger resources, so land um, or large amounts of money or the, 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 the uh, you know, an animal that's been caught in a, in a large game hunt or something like that, that there are different sorts of values around that but we're looking at something much more small and everyday so things like you know, pass me the salt or you know where's my knife for this, this kind of everyday stuff and what we found is that you you see much less variation uh, between really different cultures at that very fine level so the idea is that you know at the smallest scale of human interaction is actually where you see the least cultural diversity uh, so in the field of in the, in the function of kind of getting other people to help you in certain kinds of ways, people are, are, are just extraordinarily compliant, uh, no matter where you go, you know, you, it's very rare to get a refusal to do some small uh, favor for you in, in, in that kind of a local setting. And also another interesting thing that we found was that when you do, for a certain reason, get someone not uh, complying with what was asked of them, it 
it's well i just used the word for a certain reason this is exactly what we found is that people will explain why they can't do it uh they will give a reason why they can't do it, it you know could you go get that for me oh i'm busy here with the baby um people will generally help if they can but if they can't help and in, in in our study we found that no matter which part of the world you're from you will often or much more often give a reason why you can't uh, so it points to some kind of logic of of accounting uh, which is part of the kind of normative structure of of cooperation and 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 we think that that's shed some light on what is shared you know what's basic about human social life and the kind of cooperative principles that underpin it I'm going to ask you a slightly personal or not exactly a linguistic question, but what is the issue with people having trouble saying no? Because some people are over compliant and they do say yes to things. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to talk to uh, a psychologist or maybe a psychiatrist to, to solve that one. I don't really know. Um, you know, uh, I mean, to, to a certain extent saying no it, you know, it's it's it is uncooperative, right? It, 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 you know, and I think there's something now, now that you've asked about it. I'm just think, linking it to the study that we've done, and I think that what we've shown is that it's 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 very natural, it's very instinctive for people to not to say no. You know, they they either comply, which is what they do most of the time, or they'll have to give some kind of explanation for why they're not doing it. So if I ask you something. Uh, I've set up a sort of trajectory. I've set up a certain momentum. Uh, you know, have you got that for me? Or would you do this? Or whatever it is. I've, I've actually kind of created a, a potential commitment. And the question is, will you take that up or not? But because I've already started that kind of ball rolling, uh, it's easier for you to say yes. Uh, it's more difficult for you to say no. You've got to sort of resist that momentum, which has already been sort of started by my by my very question so saying no is, is it's just naturally harder um but of course we should say no at certain times and and i think perhaps what you're talking about i think we probably would uh, i always keep coming back to the sort of context specificity of this but i wanted to say i think we would not celebrate someone who constantly said no around the house, like a family member. I say, could you pass me that knife? No. Um, I, I need a cup, would you give me one? No. We wouldn't like that, right? And that wouldn't be celebrated. I think we sometimes do celebrate someone in, 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 professional, in the professional world. So in my field, in academia, people often complain that they can't say no and they take on too many commitments. And I think that that's, the, that's in a way the problem that uh, you transplant a kind of a, an ancient, uh, cognitive bias, you know, that I prefer to say yes, um, into this modern sort of setting where the things you're saying yes to are actually very big commitments and they're very costly. Uh, that, you know, basically a lot of people, are, I think, quite understandably less able to suppress that, that, that natural cooperative kind of uh, yes. And um, they get the benefit of it at that moment of having complied with the, the trajectory the person's set up. Um, but then unfortunately they've got to follow through with the commitment and they got to do all this extra work or whatever the thing entails that they, that they failed to say no to. 
It's not necessary, you know, people will tell you you don't have to know more than one language to do linguistics, but I think it helps a lot. So that's one thing, you've got to have a passion for understanding differences between languages. And I think that you just, you know, as with any field, you really just need to read widely and to really sort of immerse yourself in the questions that the field is is asking and answering, you know, from 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 today to, to, to going way back into the past. Um, you know, as for, you know, so that's to say that people, you know, should really prepare in a way to, to do well in linguistics and, and uh, then they'll get the most out of it. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're doing those things, then of course you, you head to college or university and uh, take linguistics courses. What you then do with that is another matter and um, that all really depends on what you find interesting and, and, and what you're good at. And as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, linguistics really captures a huge number of different areas that can lead to employment if that's what you're interested in. So it may have to do with things like, uh, you know, speech pathology, how speech works, how you would help children learn speech who are having difficulties or how you would help people with brain injuries or um, other sorts of problems though in linguistic knowledge can help to solve that um, there's a lot of technical linguistic knowledge is needed in a lot of computational applications these days speech to text um, you know machine learning all of these things of a very uh, you know translation these things are, are drawing on uh, traditions of linguistics and they're driving innovation in linguistics uh, so there's a long list of things that you could uh, apply linguistics to, of course, you know, text generation and, and, and editing and those kinds of things uh, are, are important or linguistics helps those things. It, it will be interesting to see in the near future, however, how this sort of things changes. So with AI applications around text generation, uh, you know, you have to wonder uh, what's, what's copywriting going to look like in one year from now two five years ten years from now um are we going to be approaching the generation of text in a very different way and i i think yeah we probably are on the cusp of some kind of revolution and we'll we'll see but um it will never stop people from being language using animals and i think uh to my mind that's what's most fascinating about language is really trying to understand uh, language as something that truly makes us human. You've written a lot of books on your uh, field of research where if someone were to just get started, what three books would you recommend from your work and why? Well, uh, I guess that I would recommend uh, two books I've written more for a uh, public audience so one of those books is published in 2017 called how we talk and it really focuses on the inner workings of conversation uh, so that's written for a general audience and i think it's pretty accessible um, so that would be one reason why i'd recommend it uh, but also because 
in that book, I really tried to make the case for why you want to think about language not as a sort of information processing system, but but as a system for uh, organizing social interaction. Um, so that 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 book, I think, is uh, would be recommended. Uh, also written for general audiences, the book I published last year called Language Versus Reality, uh, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. That book is, I think, hopefully accessible to a broad audience. Um, it really looks at not just interactional as part of it. I'd look at things like uh, stories, narrative storytelling, uh, look at framing, I look at a lot of the psychology of how word choice affects the way that you reason, the way that you think. Um, a lot of things that you want to be aware of if you're trying to use language in a mindful and possibly also an ethical way. Um, so I think that uh, language versus reality is one that would allow people to get into some of the questions we've been talking about today, actually, things like cognitive biases and language as a tool for manipulation and, uh, and, 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 and framing and so forth. Beyond that, a third book, um, that's kind of, it's hard to choose really uh, what general, uh, you know, for, for a general audience. I, I think that Probably the, the 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 most recent book I published would be another one I would recommend, um, partly because it's available open access. It's called Consequences of Language, and uh, it's co-authored with my colleague Jack Sidnell, who's at the University of Toronto. And in that book, uh, we're really, which I hope is also fairly accessible. It's written for a kind of broader anthropological, linguistic, sociological audience, um, and it's really about how you know, the human species somehow came up with language as this innovation. Uh, but once we had language, then language has really changed us in in, in all sorts of ways. And and that book, uh, Consequences of Language, is really about like what what are the ways in which language has actually set new coordinates for for what life is like for humans. And uh, you know, it follows in 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 uh, in line with the work of others who we're very sort of closely aligned with, so people like Daniel Dore looking at language as a as a technology, um, um, among others. Uh, but I think, yeah, that book would sort of, I guess also because it's one of my newest uh, bits of output that I feel at least that it's uh, somehow current. So those would be the three I'd recommend. Going back a bit uh, and not to take away too much from your book, why is language good for lawyers and bad for scientists? Well, because, you know, if you're a lawyer, what you're trying to do is convince, defend a position. You're trying to direct attention. You're trying to manipulate. You're, you have a goal and you're trying to draw people into that, that goal. Um, you know, so I say that language is good for that caricature of a, of a lawyer because language has those properties it's very partial it's very subjective it's very much a, a, a tool for, for directing attention um, and I say it's bad for scientists because again as a caricature of scientists so obviously scientists are not these sort of robotic rational objective creatures but I'm talking about the uh, the, the the kind of prototype of, of how scientists is meant to think um, which is 
you know, what you really want is is some kind of direct, transparent access to what reality is like. And and language just doesn't give you that. Language is this mediating sort of lens that will not allow you to directly see uh, the thing that you're trying to to study. So it's 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 a conundrum for scientists that we need to use language to talk about things. Um, and it's necessary because language is this coordinative tool. So if you were working entirely alone as a scientist, you might be able to uh, behold some phenomenon and kind of understand it at some level without without language. But you couldn't, the problem then is you can't communicate it to others. You can't have it uh, accumulate within the history. You know, you can't pass it on to the next generation. You can't build on it. You can't coordinate around that bit of knowledge if you don't have ways of talking about it. So language is a kind of necessary evil for the scientist. Um, and... Uh, you have to really work hard to overcome the kind of uh, biased nature of language. So, so you know, it's at some level, obviously, language is is crucial, is indispensable for scientists, but it's not well designed for the scientific uh, mindset. Fair enough, makes sense. And where can people find your work? Well, they can find it online. I have a website. They can go on there and see. Uh, so it's nickenfield.org. They can find uh, links to the to the books and so on. So uh, the last couple of books I mentioned are published by MIT Press. Uh, so they can just go to the MIT Press website, um, or just visit my website for links to uh, to my to my work and publications. Are you on social media at all? Uh, I do have a Twitter account. Um, it's you know, Twitter's kind of gone a bit strange a little bit different in the last uh little while and it's a little bit less clear that that the same audience is there that was there you know six months or so ago i find twitter very useful in a bunch of ways i find it a bit infuriating in a bunch of ways but um but that's the one uh social media outlet that i that i have professionally what are your thoughts on platforms like rumble that like you know they're just creating their echo chambers where it's just okay we are very right wing we have these belief systems and let's create our platform for that so there's less interactions between the two different like you know sides of the aisle or in fact there's no that's platform where people just communicate openly and then exchange ideas even if you agree or disagree and does the future look like again echo chambers or do you feel like maybe we will evolve and we will understand that like people can have different views and still cohabitate well, I'd like to think that people can have different views and still cohabitate. There's nothing that we can do about that. Uh, people have different values and they come from different communities. But what I would always want to emphasize is that there are very few situations in which people truly are confined 24-7 to those communities. I mean, you'd have to be in a cult or a sect or something to be like that. So, you know, you, you, while you might be on some niche uh, social media platform, you know, that is whether it's some political cause or whether it's, you know, chess or whether it's, uh, you know, a crochet club or it doesn't matter, you know, that people find a way to connect with others. I mean, there are significant differences between those things, obviously, because of the, the way in which those meetings and those cultures get manifest in, in, in behavior in the world. Uh, but what I was going to say is that, you know, you, you, you can spend time within those kind of contexts uh, online, but then you, 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 you 
switch off your computer, you walk out into life and you're part of uh, two or three or five or 10 or 20 other kind of communities. You know, you might have all sorts of different interests and connect with all sorts of different people. So I don't, you know, I think what you want is diversity and variety. Uh, I don't think there's anything intrinsically problematic about allowing people to gather and talk about the things that, that interest them. You might disagree with a political position or with a particular sentiment or what have you. And of course, some of these things might be, um, uh, you know, actually aimed at, at, at illegal activity or uh, whatever the case may be. And that's, that's another whole set of problems. But um, I don't think that those, you know, the possibility of organizing illegal activities is just attributable to social media. It just it just is a different dynamic in terms of creating a a community for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm sort of more positive minded about social media in that way, um, and I think that it doesn't introduce qualitatively different kind of problems than are already there in the world. One last question before we like you know tap out is what's going to be a very surly question is aliens. So if aliens were to come on Earth and like, you know, we have to communicate, how would you recommend we uh, tackle that? <laughs> well, I'd stop thinking about language and I would just think about action. I mean, you know, uh, how do you, so you want to think at a much more basic level um, and you want to think about first, like just how would you, I mean, communication itself is a sort of a slightly distracting term here um and i think the first thing you want to think out about is just like how do i interact with this sort of entity so you know if it's a if it's a rock uh you can interact with it by picking it up and throwing it if it's small you know if it's big you can't and so you figure out well how can i move it in some other way and uh if, when you start to deal with things like animals well you don't try to talk to animals but you figure out things like well what does it respond to and how does it respond to that thing so you know it's a bear well what do you hold you stand still uh isn't that what they say you know you hold up your arms you stand still something like this so you know you, when you're really trying to deal with some alien life form like another species on earth um you know you don't sit there going oh what am i going to say to it what's its language um you you think much more concretely about well you know how do i what actions do I take and how do I control or predict the way it's going to respond? So often how we deal with animals is that, you know, we learn what they respond to. We learn what they like, what they don't like. We learn what makes them mad, what makes them ignore us or, you know, whatever it is that we're trying to get them to do. So, you know, if aliens came, well, I think the last thing we should be worrying about is like, what's their language? Um, because language itself is a system for action, a system for acting upon others and for eliciting responses from others. It's, it's just a very fancy one and, and a very particular type of one. So, uh, so I'd be just trying to think more about what are the ways of interacting with this entity such that we can uh, increase the likelihood of predicting what it's going to do at any point. Fair enough. Okay. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me.